Our Father, we're thankful that this is our Father's world and that we are the sheep of your pasture. And Father, we're so grateful that you are the Good Shepherd who takes good care of his sheep. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have caused us to uh, trust in you and to be those who follow you, that we are those who hear the voice of the Master and we know his voice. And I trust that through our time that we spend here this morning, we will know your voice even better. We understand that it is through your word that we know you. And so, Father, I pray that you will bless our focus this morning. Ask that you will minister to each heart today according to your great plan. You know the needs of each person here, physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever they may be. And I trust you to meet those needs. And Lord, to bless throughout this church this morning in the various classes and in the Sunday school hour, that your presence will be sensed in a way that will change lives and will exalt your great name. For it is in that name we pray. Amen. Third chapter of Joshua. Joshua chapter 3, reading the first six verses. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. In this passage, we're studying the events which occurred right after the spies had completed their successful foray into Jericho and the whole account that we uh, studied relative to Rahab. Now we're back on the east side of the Jordan, just north of the Dead Sea, and Israel is preparing for its final uh, access into the land. In the third and fourth verses there, we read the commands which came from Joshua through the officers to the people, that they were to, when they saw the Ark of the Covenant going before them, that they were to follow it and to stay back a distance of 2,000 cubits behind the Ark of the Covenant. There's no record in Scripture here, at least, that these instructions which Joshua has given to Israel were instructions that first were given to him by God. What we are discovering here is that Joshua is stepping out in faith. His faith is in the fact that the God who had promised to be with him, as he had promised to be with Moses, will work a miracle here. Joshua is believing in a miracle. I don't mean like you keep hearing it on television, you know, the guy comes out and says, believe in a miracle today, you know, where you sell miracles like hot dogs. You know, it reminds me of John Tetzel trying to sell indulgences and Martin Luther got real ticked and nailed the 95 Theses as, as a result. You don't sell miracles like hot dogs. A miracle is not a miracle if it's happening constantly all the time. <laughs> a miracle is, is when God intervenes in a dramatic way for a purpose that is clear 
to those for whom he intervenes. We, we have a tendency to call almost everything a miracle that happens a little out of the ordinary. Um, that's not really a miracle in the true biblical sense of the term. We're talking about something that God is going to do here that is going to change the lives of his people and it's going to further change the lives of the Canaanites. God works miracles not on our whim but to accomplish his will. To ensure the miracle which Joshua believed was coming, he ordered that the symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, would lead the people on towards the river. Joshua knew that he was doing, this is really absolutely imperative. Joshua knew that he was doing God's will in the very beginning. He knew that this whole thing was God's plan. It wasn't a guess or a hope or a maybe. It wasn't Joshua's plan, hoping that God would somehow conform to it. He knew this is what God had commanded him to do, to lead Israel over the Jordan. We'll be reading in a few moments a passage back in Deuteronomy where this was already made clear to him uh, weeks and months before this particular time. So he had the faith to believe that God was going to enable him to do what God had called him to do. And that, of course, is a well-placed faith. If God has called us to do something, He will always enable us to do it. Throughout Scripture, we're constantly reminded that there is nothing that can keep God's will from being performed except the disobedience of His people and the doubt of His people. God will accomplish His will through us as long as we're obedient and as long as we have faith. If we're believing Him and walking with Him, He will accomplish His will through us. He will simply do that. Sometimes He will accomplish His will even if we're not very cooperative. It reminds me, you've, you've heard it often said, I'm sure, uh, the quote that comes from C.S. Lewis. God drug me kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. You know? Sometimes God does that. But normally He works through willing servants. And Joshua was a, an obedient, faithful servant. When the Levitical priests carried the ark toward the river, the people were to follow in an orderly manner. It wasn't like the day the gun went off and the, all the Sooners rushed into Oklahoma to see how much territory they could grab. That wasn't this way at all. They were to follow the ark in an orderly manner into the river. The only requirement was that they keep a distance of 2,000 cubits, which is approximately 3,000 feet between them and the ark. Now, the only reason that Joshua gives for maintaining this approximately one kilometer between the, um, the ark and, and the people was the phrase at the end of uh, verse 4, which says that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. You have not passed this way before. I think that there is more in that phrase than first meets the eye because it's obvious they had never crossed you know, the Jordan at this point or any point. <laughs> they had never been in Canaan before. So that's the obvious thing. But I think there is a great deal more to it than that because to them, as they looked across the Jordan, they could see the other bank of the Jordan and nothing looked particularly serious other than the river itself. I mean, if the river was no problem, the rest of it looked like a piece of cake, no big problem. And so why was it so important that they follow the ark? Well, I think that there were several implications in that phrase that you have not passed this way before. 
And I've, I've listed, I think, uh, on the outline some of them. First, of course, it is obvious. You've never been in Canaan before, okay? Uh, that's, that's the obvious uh, understanding. But I think there is also the concept that they had never followed the ark into battle before. They had followed the ark, but never into battle, never into conquest, never into the land to which, you know, that God had promised to them and never with swords and shields and spears and weapons poised to do battle with the enemies, the Canaanite. And, and secondly, I think that it implies the fact that the last time they had been ordered to go into Canaan at Kadesh Barnea, they refused, they rebelled, they wouldn't go in. You have not been this way before, folks, because the last time you said no, and you turned your backs and wouldn't go in, and you ended up wandering in the wilderness for 38 more years. Thirdly, I think that the implication was there was to be no foolhardy action here. where It wasn't going to be just rushing across the river like gangbusters and everybody trying to grab what they could. It was to be a meticulously ordered advance. There was to be no presumptuous action here. We act in faith, not in presumption. And then fourthly, and possibly most importantly, they're entering a totally new phase in their existence. They had spent 400, that is the nation had, spent 400 years in Egypt, then had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And all of this was preparatory, making them ready for the conquest and the occupation of the land. They would occupy the land a whole lot longer than they had ever been in Egypt. And so, in order to do this, they were to follow the Word of God. And where was the Word of God physically? It was in the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant was the repository for the writings of Moses. They were in there. And so they would follow the Ark as a symbol of their commitment to the obedience of the Word of God, that they will follow God's Word. And, you know, the, the, um, the application, I think, is at least fairly obvious here that you and I, too, must follow the Word of God if we expect to get to the, quote, promised land. Promised land in the sense of, of finding God's purpose for us here in this life, and then, of course, the ultimate promised land. The only way we understand the truth is through the Bible alone. One of the principles of the great Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. This was one of the banner phrases of the Reformation, and, and that was that the Scripture alone, the Scripture alone is the authoritative guide for Christian faith and conduct, for doctrine and conduct, nothing else. Not tradition, not works, not icons, not rulings of councils or rulings of popes. The Scripture alone is our guide, and in it we find truth. The only way that we can know how to get to the promised land, whatever all that means to us individually and corporately, is by following the Word of God. The Lord said in Psalm 119, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There is no other light. There is no other lamp. There is no other way to find the path except through the Word of God. And so Israel was to follow that ark, symbolizing their commitment to the Word of God. They had not passed this way before, literally. They had been very disobedient numerous times in the wilderness. And God was bringing them to a place of focus because there was no way they were going to be successful in this conquest unless they were obedient to God each step of the way. 
And that is quite obvious. Most of you are quite familiar with events which will happen shortly that we haven't come to yet. And what happened at AI, you know. And then what later happens at Gibeon. And, and in the conquest, when they get their eyes off God, wham. This whole thing is to be viewed as a spiritual enterprise. This is not foremost a military program here. It's a spiritual enterprise. And I, I think that is made clear in verse 5 where Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. He didn't say to the people, Okay, guys, check out your weapons. You know, prepare your minds for battle. You know, get into that warrior mode. Israel had little experience with being in a warrior mode in the first place. He said, consecrate yourselves. The word consecrate was first used in Scripture when God said to Moses, consecrate the people just before the encounter that Moses had with God on the top of Mount Sinai, if you may remember. He was going up there, but the people were to consecrate themselves because he was going up on their behalf. The word consecrate is a spiritual term. It's not a military term. And it includes the idea of setting apart to God, of sanctifying, of dedicating. So their whole focus was, we trust in you, God, for the victory in this conquest. We're not depending on our might. We're not depending even on Joshua as a military leader. We're depending upon him as the one who brings us the word of God, as our prophet, as it will were. I think at least this reminded me when I was studying this of the passage that you know well, I think, in 2 Corinthians 10.4, where we read that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And this, I, I don't think, needs to be interpreted as the fall of Jericho. Now, literally, a, a fortress will fall by divine power. But of course, what Paul is talking about is spiritual forces, uh, philosophies, uh, the world system, whereby we are, we are caught up in uh, these things of the world. I mean, if we really analyze our lives carefully, we'll probably discover that most of our problems are not rooted in, in necessarily our job or our school or how much money we have, but they tend to be rooted in interpersonal relationships. And those interpersonal relationships are very, very important because many times they will pull us down or they will build us up depending upon whether, of course, God is in us and God is in those other persons. Over and over again, God had to remind Israel that their strength was in their faith, not in their military prowess. How could a bunch of ex-slaves be much of an army? What training did they have? Well, I mentioned the fact that it was possible that Moses had one time been in the Egyptian army. It's possible Joshua had served in the Egyptian army. But none of that is stated in Scripture. This is just, you know, assuming this, these are possibilities. But, I mean, what experience did Israel have in warfare? None. The only experience they had was the warfare they actually had to do. <laughs> fighting the Amalekites, and then, of course, fighting against the Amorites. And it was a trial and error thing. 
And God made it very clear. I picked you the, le the least of all the people <laughs> to, to become my people so that you couldn't glory in yourselves. You, you see this, I think, in a microcosm when you look at the choice of David, God's anointing of David through Samuel. David was the youngest of the brothers. And even though David, I don't think, was the little tiny kid that he sometime is, sometimes is portrayed to be. I don't know if you've ever seen the statue, the uh, bronze made by Donatello of David. But in, in that, he's trying to portray David after he has slain Goliath. And he's, he's portrayed at, with a body of about a 14-year-old boy, you know, very kind of soft yet, you know, and, and immature and undeveloped. And, and then, of course, you come to Michelangelo's David, who stands 14 feet tall looked down on Goliath and said, what would you say, boy? <laughs> Not quite. But, you know, somewhere in between was the real David. But God picked David to, to be there, and, and David was the one who went forth to, to battle against Goliath. Not because David was the strongest and the most powerful man in the Israelite army, but because he believed God would give the victory. I mean, he was not insulted personally. He was insulted on God's behalf. And so God was saying to Israel, you're not a mighty nation. I didn't pick you because you were a warlike people with this long tradition of great military strategy and victory. I picked you because you were the opposite, in fact. So I can glorify myself in you because it's obvious you couldn't win the battle. You could only win if God gives the victory. And that's what he's trying to convince Israel here, that it's not by their military prowess, but by their faith that they will win this land. And he repeatedly emphasized, and you see this throughout the Old Testament, that it was he who gives the victory of the weak over the strong, of the poor over the rich, because it is his empowerment that enables it. And so they were to consecrate themselves to God that would give them much more uh, opportunity to win than if they went out and trained for a year to be good soldiers and sharpened their swords and you know, went through all the motions. They would be less successful than if they simply dedicated themselves to God and went forward in His strength. How many times in Scripture do we read where the enemy was routed surely by what God did? There was a rustling in the trees, and then there was the roar of, of chariots that didn't exist. But the enemy army heard them, and they knew the, the, you know, somebody was coming, and so they fled. Or the breaking of pitchers and the yelling, screaming of 300 men routing 30,000. That's in their future yet. But Israel is having to learn at this point to believe God if they're going to conquer the land. And I think the, uh, the application, again, is obvious to us, isn't it? We cannot have victory in our lives. We, we cannot achieve what God has for us. We can't tear down the, 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 these, these spiritual fortresses in our strength. We'll never assault those walls by crawling and clawing our way up the outside. God will tear them down. God will bring the victory. God will give us the strength to achieve His purpose. And it's very, very important that we consecrate ourselves as Israel consecrated themselves. And they did so. That night between verses 5 and 6, the night occurs that was implied there in verse 5, the evening of consecration. And then came the next day. And the next day was the day they had anticipated for 40 years. Joshua commanded the priest, pick up the ark, we're going across the river. I think without hesitation 
those priests picked up the ark. I don't think they looked at the river and looked at the ark and looked at the river and looked at the ark and thought, are you sure, Joshua? <laughs> I think there was an excitement there. I think there was a faith there. And they picked up that ark and they started out towards the river. And the stage was set for the second great commencing miracle of Jewish history, of Hebrew history. As the parting of the Red Sea was remembered by the generation that left Egypt, so the parting of the Jordan would be remembered by the generation that carried out the conquest of Canaan. Verse 7 of Joshua 13, uh, 3, Joshua 3. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand up in one heap. Well, this passage, we finally get the word of the Lord to Joshua. Joshua is finally hearing directly from God at this point. And what's interesting is that God confirms everything Joshua has done so far. He doesn't say, now, Joshua, you got ahead of the story here or got ahead of the plan. No, he confirms everything that he has done and then explains what he is to do next and exactly what is going to happen. God was about to perform another incredible miracle as Joshua was believing. Now, in our day, we would just call in the engineers. The engineers would just drop bridges across the river, splat, you know. And the Marines would be across in no time. Tanks would be rolling and the whole ball of wax. But they didn't have any of that, of course. They had no engineers. They had no tanks. They had nothing. Most of them probably didn't even know how to swim. So it was going to be some task crossing that river unless God intervened. And of course, that's exactly what Joshua was believing for. The miracle that God was going to perform would accomplish several things. First of all, that miracle was going to exalt Joshua in the eyes of all Israel because he had believed God and he had commanded them to take the ark to the river and the water is going to part and the people are going to go, whoa, you know, and Joshua will receive some of the glory. It was to prove beyond a shadow of anybody's doubt that Joshua was the man. Joshua was their leader. Joshua was fully as worthy to follow as Moses had been before. They were not to look at Joshua as a secondary leader, as an inferior leader, as somebody we got to follow because the real leader's dead. No, Joshua is the real leader, folks. Let me turn and um, read a passage from the 31st chapter of Deuteronomy. From verse 1 of Deuteronomy 31. This is Moses' last counsel to Israel. 
So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them just as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he has destroyed them, when he destroyed them. And the Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And so this day, as the miracle is performed, all of this will be confirmed to Joshua and in the sight of all Israel. It is God who performs the miracle, but it is Joshua who has been God's instrument of leadership and faith. Secondly, the miracle will, of course, accomplish the glorification of God. For us who live at this time and, and we're familiar with the Bible story and we're familiar with the whole concept of 2,000 years of church teaching, relative to the Old and New Testament. It's hard for us to step back into the time 3,500 years ago when we're talking about and, and to understand that um, Israel knew their God, but of course Israel had grown up or had spent 400 years in slavery in a land that had many gods. And uh, much of that time they were enslaved and so they wouldn't think of their God as any greater than any other God because they were enslaved. And he had performed the mighty miracle of crossing the Red Sea, and he had done many miracles in the process in between. But for many of them yet, probably, they hadn't come to the place of understanding who God really was. That beside him, there isn't any other God. It's like I've mentioned to you before. It's my own little pet uh, peeve. But, you know, I love the song, Our God is... Yeah, but I, I hate the word Anne. He is not an awesome God. He is the Awesome. There isn't any other. How can he be Anne? You know, that, that implies there are more. You know, that there are others around. <laughs> uh, no. And Israel was, was just beginning to come to that place to know that, I mean, that's why it's repeated in this passage twice. The Lord of all the earth. Not just the Lord of Israel, because the common belief was that every tribe had its own God. Every city had its own tutelary God, its own guardian God. And, you know, one God was stronger than the other if one city captured the other. But and what happened then? They just added them both together. And you end up with this pyramid of gods, you know. It's like you go back to uh, the ancient Aztecs. The ancient Aztecs had this, this god whose name was Huitzilopochtli, and, and this was a very bloody god. And, but there were other gods around that were very important, so they adopted them too. And so they're all these gods, and they all kind of mixed together. You know, Quetzalcoatl and Huitzilopochtli and Tlaloc and all the other gods, kind of all... Zzz, mixed together here, and, and how do you define one from the other? See, that, that's demonic, that's human thinking. But the power of God is absolutely clear. God will part this river, and no other God in history, so-called God, had ever done anything of the sort. 
Thirdly, it would give the people confidence that they will be victorious. And this is clear in verse 10 where Joshua said, by this, by what? By this miracle, you shall know that the living God is among you and he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite and all these other people. You will know it will happen because if he can stop a river, what's the problem with a few people? No problem at all. So they would go forth in great confidence walking across the dry riverbed knowing, wow, everything's going to fall before us. And then lastly, fourthly, it would reinforce the Canaanites' thinking, which was already in their minds, that it was a lost cause, <laughs> that they were hopeless. Even as Rahab had said, our, health, our hearts have melted within us. This is going to reconfirm that to them because not only do they remember the story of the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea and then of the defeat of Og and Sion, but just yesterday the river Jordan stood on its head and they went across. What hope do we have? What will our gods do? We can't even do enough to convince our gods that they ought to do something nice to us. How are they going to defend us from the mighty God of Israel? His instructions to Joshua were that he was to command the, 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 the priests as they carried the ark that as soon as they got their feet wet, they were to stop, stand still. Forty years earlier, the Israelites, they had no ark. They had no Levitical priestly line at that time. They were just a motley bunch of slaves moving out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And they stood at the shore of the Red Sea and they turned around they could see the dust of the rapidly approaching Egyptian army. And, and they were thus in the proverbial place of being between the rock and the hard place, you know. There they were. And of course, when most of us are in that kind of a situation, we're really active to do something about it. And God said to them, what? Be still. Be still. Stop where you're at and see the salvation of the Lord. Let me read the passage you know from Psalm 46 that relates to this. Psalm 46, verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth, and he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. In the King James Version, I like the King James Version better at this point because it says, literally it says there, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. But the Hebrew can be, of course, see striving is the same thing, I suppose. In fact, in, in the margin here, in my Bible, it says, let go, relax, relax and know that the Lord is God. Sometimes we strive when we ought not to be striving. We're not trusting when we should be trusting. We're working when we should be still. There's a time, of course, for action, but it has to be God-directed and God-empowered action. Otherwise, we're just thrashing the air like a windmill. We're not accomplishing anything. So after the priests got their feet wet, they just walked up to the water and got their feet wet and stood there so that they could experience the full force of the
the miracle. Let it saturate them. Whoa, the water's rolling upstream. You know exactly how the miracle worked, I don't know, but I could just imagine, since it talks about the river piling up in a heap, that the river probably just kind of turned around and ran back upstream. Whew. Formed a wall as it went back upstream. Uh, sort of like the tidal bore that comes up the Amazon, only a much greater scale, of course. Watch it happen. You know, if you're too busy walking out into the river, you don't even see what's going on. Stop and watch. See the miracle that God is doing. And that's what they were doing. And just in case the people couldn't quite grasp what was going to happen, God told Joshua to explain it to them that when the souls of the, this is verse 13 of Joshua 3, when the souls of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. And the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in a big heap. Ever seen a heap of water? I don't think you've ever seen a heap of water like this one. This was a very unusual heap of water. <laughs> it, to me, it reminds me of the, time, of, the, of the miracle of God parting the Red Sea. How do you do that, you know? Could it have been, as, as when we talked about this, that the, as they were walking by, on the, that they could look over to the left and look to the right and see this wall of water and see the fish swimming through it? <laughs> but not falling out? Kind of like there was a big, you know, like an aquarium with glass on both sides holding the wall of water up. It was held up by the power of God. All kinds of guys got to come along and say, well, there was a big wind, and this wind just blew the water apart. And, well, if it blew the water apart, where would the children of Israel have been? They'd have been blown into the other land or wherever, you know. <laughs> wind strong enough to hold water in a wall is going to move people horizontally. <laughs> there just are so many who don't want to believe that God will work miracles on a mighty way. They don't want to believe he intervenes. It's, it goes all the way, it harkens back, in, in our country at least, to, to the uh, late 18th century and the whole development of deism. And the whole idea, yes, there's a God, and yeah, there's a Bible, and, and as long as you take all the miracles out of the Bible, we can accept the Bible, and you know, God set it all going, but we're just supposed to live by the natural law. Live by the natural law. And if you live by the natural law, everything will be okay. But the idea of a divine interjection, the, the uh, concept of a, of, of a virgin birth, of a miraculous resurrection, all of that is, is, is verboten to people who think that way. And why do they not want to think that way? Because if you think that way, then there's a responsibility that you owe to God beyond your definition of what is natural law. And people often don't want to admit that they need God in a life-transforming way. And that probably is the greatest barrier to the growth of the church around the world. is people who don't want to believe. They don't want to be responsible to a God who will hold them accountable for the lives they live. And that's why sometimes people, when they are, quote, converted, don't live that way. Because really they haven't been transformed. And they don't want to obey God because they're not really God's child. You watch children when they grow up. Uh, yeah, they're, they're disobedient sometimes, but they know mommy. They know daddy. And generally they want to be with mommy and daddy. You hand them to a stranger and they don't like that idea very much at all, usually. And, and, and that's the way it is with people who have truly been born again. They know God and they know Jesus and they want to be with him and they don't want to be with the stranger, the evil one, you know. And if that's not there, I, I don't think they've been born again. I don't think they are a child of God. So God is working this mighty miracle on behalf of his people, and I think it was an absolute, outright miracle. 
I don't think there are any natural causes. There was no tornado that kind of swished through there, you know, and blew the river out of the way for a little while. You know, I think it would have been a fabulous thing to videotape. Wide angle. You know, what, what, God, what God did that day. I, there was tremendous excitement in those people. Can you imagine how excited these people were? Whoa, look at that river. And we're not talking about just a little crick. Jordan at this time was not a crick. Scripture tells us it was flood time. It was over its borders. Well, I suspect it could have been as wide as 100 yards, which is no Amazon, of course, or no Mississippi. But still, something a little too wide to pole vault across or swim across, especially if you don't know how to swim. And carry all, get all your sheep and all your cattle and everything across this river. No, no. It was a mighty barrier to them. God just blew the barrier away. One fell swoop. And they walked across with great excitement. Can you imagine that? Well, I don't know. I would think there'd be a lot of chatter. Maybe they were just awestruck, though, into silence. I don't know. But uh, I, I think that it was an exciting time. You know, I, I've not seen a miracle like that, have you? I mean, I've seen quote, what I would sort of, you know, in the general sense of the term, call a miracle. But something like this would just put you in absolute awe of who God is. And uh, I think there are many miracles like that yet in the future. They're coming. Maybe sooner rather than later, too. And I hope so. Well, I think I'll stop there. And we'll pick up with verse 14 next Sunday.